I'd like to take his his face off. Babel Bullshit and Beyond, a podcast hosted by me, Marco Kiris, bringing you a standards perspective of the film industry and an immigrant's perspective on America. The most fluffy, fun, pop bullshit you can tune into. Today on the show, we have the pleasure of talking with Michael Kaliri, co-writer of the John Woo mega blockbuster movie Face Off, which I had the privilege of working alongside Nicolas Cage as his stand-in in the greater LA area. With this year marking the 20th anniversary of the film, Michael and I will be reminiscing and sharing insight on one of the most iconic cult classics from the 1990s. Hey, Hi, Marco. <laughs> How are you, Michael? That's great quality. I'm great. How are you? It's a little, your poster's a little distracting. I've got a... It is. It's, my head is in between two big boobs. It's kind of like my life story, <laughs> except I'm the bigger boob. And I don't want to flaunt my big fat Greek hairy nibbles in front of you, but you know. <laughs> How are you? Good, good. How are you? We're wearing the same sweater. It looks that way, yeah. Comfort is king, you know. That is. That's the way it's gotta be. Yeah. I, you're in your office, right? I am. I'm in my home office. Good. Is this okay? Is this an? Yeah, it's okay. beautiful. So, Michael, it's great to finally see you after yes. over 10 years, but haven't really seen you in almost 20 years. And it is the 20th anniversary of the release of the movie Face Off. That's correct. Um, I wasn't thinking about that much. I can't believe it's been 20 years. I can't either. It's flown by. It's crazy. I mean, it's an iconic film. Until I saw your note that it was a 20th anniversary, I had no idea. Are they doing anything about that? Is Paramount having some kind of a fun release? I don't know. I I have not heard a word about that. And um, usually I probably would have heard something. But of course, it's been a new regime there for a long, long time. And, yeah. you know, as you know, uh, 20 years is ancient history. Yeah. And um, so I but I have heard nothing about they did a 10 year uh, anniversary DVD. Um, but Mike and I uh, are the ones who kind of kept that going. We sort of went to the studio and they came to us. The studio went, well, if you can get John Woo and all these, you know, all, everyone involved. We said, so we, they, they let us do a lot of the heavy lifting, but we haven't done anything. We didn't reach out to them for the 20th or anything like that. So, but I don't know. Uh, it plays on, you know, as you know, that plays on cable all the time. So I guess they feel like why do anything extra it still floats around on hbo so well it's a, it's a great film i was very uh, proud to have worked on it it was an exhausting film i will say and fortunately i'm still getting residual checks from that film for some strange reason i didn't know how the system worked but boy am i thinking my lucky stars to this very day yeah i well you it was on tv there night i saw your scene so yeah. uh yeah it's great it's a I lot was, of fun i was a little more bloated and beyond during that particular <laughs> time i was on so much tylenol just to get through the day and coffee and cappuccinos because the hours were so extensive and the prison was very i know people were really sick during that phase yeah. there was a lot of flu going around that was over christmas right so i think people were really and they were wound, you know, kind of just worn down by that point because they had been shooting for a couple months at least. So, yeah, yeah, it was a long shoot. It was six months. It was. I thought it was five and a half to six months. You're right. And that prison scene, which actually got me very sick as well. And I'm sure there was asbestos and stuff in there because it was a non-operating prison. It was in downtown L.A., wasn't it? The prison was set in a power plant. Oh, right, right. The power plant. So there may very well have been. Certainly, there was a lot of dust in there, uh, and they may have been asbestos. I 
who knows? Yeah, I, I mean, probably I'm gonna guess. But uh, and I love the laugh scenes that we had shot. Um, that was fantastic. I don't remember. It was so, again. That was somewhere downtown. It was. That was in a an old high rise uh, that gets a lot of shooting. A lot of a lot of stuff films there. Um, and it was up on a very high floor, like the 30th floor or something like that, the penthouse level. Um, but uh, but yeah, that was downtown. That was all built inside. Uh, let me ask you, Michael, uh, just to go back a little bit with the script. How did you guys approach this together between you and Mike Werb to come up with the concept of face off? And with that, how long did it take to finally get to a studio to be looked at? Well, well, the and I feel a little uh, unprepared because Mike is not here, obviously. So I'm going to probably speak for him a little bit. Um, face off started really uh, because Mike and I. We're both screenwriters separately. We had gone to film school together and we had, were both just getting kind of going in the business. So we decided to write something together. We didn't really have an idea. We all, but at that time, everyone in studio, Hollywood was looking for the next Die Hard. So we got together and said, all right, well, what, what kind of Die Hard movie can we come up with? And, and we said, well, there hasn't been a Die Hard movie yet set in a prison. And that was really the start of it. it. We really started out as a gritty prison break movie, like an, against like an Attica kind of riot, in which a cop goes undercover in this prison to get some information and then ends up being caught up in a riot that no one expected. And he's on the run. And, and that's really the, the very initial thought, the genesis of Face Off. And then Mike we kind of mold that over. By the way, this took place over about three days. It took place over the 4th of July weekend in 1990. We got together and said, let's figure something out. We had no ideas prior to sitting down. We just said, let's just spitball. And so it evolved really quickly between the two of us. And then Mike said, well, he thought about it and said, it's a little grim. What if the prison is a prison of the future? What if it's set in the future? And I was not down with that at first, but then he really convinced me that, okay, this is, let, let's move this more into a sci-fi realm. So anyway, we thought, well, what if we get this FBI agent into this prison? He gets caught up in a prison escape and nobody knows who he is when he's on the street. We said, well, how do we make that work? Huh. If he, if it's the modern day, it would be hard to really justify. He can't just go home. He can't just call his office. He can't just, you know, it just seemed like that wasn't feasible. Um, so we talked around, it took about three days and then we kind of just hit upon this idea. All right, well, he takes the identity of a guy he captures in the beginning to go undercover in this crime organization. But in initially that guy who ended up being Castor was dead. He never came back in this story. And then somehow we just kind of kicked it around until it was like, oh, well, what if that guy's not dead and he's just in a coma and he wakes up and now he becomes the other guy and they swap lives. And uh, to give credit where it's due, Mike had the great idea. Once we hit on that, he said, yeah, and they're both better people as each other. And uh, so when, when we kind of hit upon that, that really is what gave shape to the to the movie, to the script. But we wrote our first draft. This was now in the fall of 1990. It, it went out in January of 1991 on the day of the Gulf War. They, they, we had a meeting in the late 1990 with Mike's agents, and they said, we're going to send it out on January 17th or whatever the day was. We said, look, George Bush, President Bush, number one, 
that's when he said, that's the deadline. They're going to attack. That's like the only war in history that had a start date. And they said, nobody in Hollywood cares about that kind of stuff. Well, the day came along and we sent the script out, expecting everyone to flood us with offers on that Monday. The phone doesn't ring. And we call the agent. We said, what's what's going on? He's like, are you crazy? Our country's at war. Haven't you been following the news? The office is closing down. William Morris closed early that day. Oh, my God. Because the war in Iraq had started, the first one in Kuwait. We did manage to sell it. We optioned it to Warner Brothers. Uh, but our big dream of a big score did not take place. Um, we were thrilled to sell it, don't get me wrong. But but our grand plan of having a big, you know, Shane Black-like haul did not, did not materialize. <laughs> And so it landed at Warner Brothers in early 91. And so that's kind of how it landed. And it did it stay there for a while? Because it was obviously produced by Paramount and uh, we were on the lot and so forth. Um, yeah. How long was it at Warner? Or did it have a sleepover for a couple of years or how did that work? Yeah, it, well, we had it. We optioned it um, for I think it was 18 months or two years to Warner Brothers. And we did two drafts of rewrites for Warner Brothers and oh. for Joel Silver's company. They were happy to option this it wasn't it didn't cost them very much money but they really were not that interested in it um and didn't they already had demolition man coming out which to them was similar turf futuristic mono a mono uh so they just you know and they were kind of confused by it they didn't seem to understand that the actors would switch roles we actually had a meeting early on in warner brothers with some executive whose name i don't recall who said well how is this supposed to work you know, makeup has not advanced to the point where someone can wear someone else's face and make it look real. And we said, you understand that the actors switch roles, right? That that the one guy plays the other guy. Oh, 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 okay. Oh, that might work, they said. At Paramount, Sherry Lansing, who was the chairperson of Paramount, read the script. She loved it immediately. And so she was like, I got to make this movie. And that was the difference between Warner Brothers and Paramount. We all, we, you know, there were a lot of ups and downs on making Face Off at Paramount, but we always had the support of the top person. And, and that's how the movie got made. She just was determined to make that movie um, and come hell or high water. And, and she did ultimately, although it did go through a lot of ups and downs. With that, um, was Nick and uh, JT attached to it from the beginning? Mike and my big fantasy was that we would they would cast. This is back when we were selling it the first time, and we our dream was to get Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone in a movie together, because the movie only really works if you have guys who have personas. Yes, you you can't put people in it who nobody knows. They need to have personas to play off of, and, and of course, who had bigger personas in those days than Sly and Arnold? Mm -hmm. um, of course, that never happened, uh, and that's a blessing, of course, uh, in a way, although it would have been cool. But by the time it landed at Paramount, our, Mike and my thinking had evolved because we thought, you know, we, a lot of people had come to us saying, oh, can you put Dolph Lundgren in it? Um, so we kicked, we made a lot of lists we had De Niro and Pacino, you know, against each other. And we, we had a ton of lists. Dave, we, we had a crazy one, David Bowie and Mick Jagger, with oh a million different crazy scenarios in which these guys could, you know, a good match. And actually, um, 
before John Woo came aboard, Nick was definitely on our list. And uh, Nick and Johnny Depp were looking to do a movie together because, as you know, they're great friends. Uh, around 1995, this is way before Pirates of the Caribbean. And I know a lot of your listeners know Johnny Depp from Pirates of the Caribbean. But prior to Pirates of the Caribbean, Johnny Depp was not really a movie star. He was a very good actor, obviously, but he was in a lot of art films. And around the mid-90s, uh, Sherry Lansing said Johnny Depp should be a movie star. And they, and they put him in a movie called Nick of Time. And they they tried to get him kind of into the action mode, you know, action film mode. And they wanted Johnny Depp to be in Face Off. And Nick, I guess it somehow had gotten the script at that point. And he wanted to be in Face Off too. And Paramount would own, now this is prior to leaving Las Vegas. Mm. And Nick, Nick had been in Kiss of Death for Paramount, maybe in a couple other movies that hadn't done that great. So Paramount's attitude was, okay, we love we love these guys, but, but if Johnny Depp's yes, to this movie, then Nick can be in it. Well, Michael Douglas, who was then the producer on the movie because he had a deal at Paramount, Sherry Lansing asked him to produce the film for the studio. He chased after Johnny Depp for months and months and months trying to get Johnny Depp to read Face Off. And, uh, and Johnny Depp eventually didn't read, read half of it and said he thought it was going to be about hockey, which is why he agreed it to begin with. And he passed. Now, we were... We went back to the studio and said, look, what about Nick Cage? You know, Nick wants to do it. Nick could play either part. Um, and they kind of just tabled the whole thing uh, at that point because for a lot of other reasons, nothing to do with actors. But they were having trouble with finding a director, et cetera. So the whole thing kind of – anyway, but that's that's the first time we heard Nick was interested. Um, Travolta didn't come on until much later after John Woo was attached. And how was uh, John Woo attached? Was he, uh, I, I mean, did he kind of help green light it 100% at that point? I mean, it was green light, but why was John Woo so interested? Well, um, during that dead time when Warner Brothers had the script. So one night, Mike and I, just just to hang out, went to the new Beverly Theater, which is now owned by Quentin Tarantino. And it's a revival house. And, oh. and they showed this movie. We, we saw the trailer for this movie called The Killer. The trailer was insane. But I had never heard of John Woo or Chai Young Fat or anything like that. But the trailer was like, oh, my God, what the hell is that? So just as film fans, we went to see The Killer. And we sat through it. And then at the end of it, The Killer, we both turned to each other and said, Face Off is a John Woo movie. And then we had never met John. We didn't know what who John was, where John was. We knew nothing about John Woo except the themes that were all over The Killer or all over Face Off. Well, as it happens, John Woo had just come over to America, had just signed with the William Morris Agency, which represented my writing partner. Hmm. And we found out later that John had actually been sent face off back when Joel Silver was the producer. We didn't know that. We didn't know who John was. And John had read it um, and said, oh, it's too futuristic. Well, two years then went by and we called, we found out John was at William Morris and we called John's agent, who Mike knew, you know, Pat Dollard and Mike Simpson and all those guys all worked together. We said, please let John read Face Off. So John read Face Off and said, oh, they, they took my note. They took all the science fiction out of it. That's great. And he, wa <laughs> and, and he wanted to do it, um, but he was already scheduled to do Broken Arrow with, with Travolta. Mm-hmm. 
And so he couldn't do face off. He really that's when we met him the first time. He said, I just want you to know that face off is the best action script I've ever read. Little did I know. John said that to every writer who walked in his door. <laughs> but, He's always so polite. But we, we were, of course, floored and um, so happy. Uh, and we said, well, why don't, we said, why don't you direct it? And he, he looked at his partner, Terrence Chang, like, yeah, why can't I direct it? Explain that to me again. So anyway, so John went off to make Broken Arrow and, and the studio put another director on Face Off. Um, and that's the Johnny Depp cage stuff started to happen. Um, but it took so long for Johnny Depp to pass that by the time Johnny Depp passed, John Woo was done with Broken Arrow and he was available again. Wow. And now John Travolta, as again, your listeners probably know, was in the midst of this great post Pulp, Pulp Fiction renaissance. Mm-hmm. And Travolta had never played a bad guy uh, in his whole career um, at, until he played one in Broken Arrow. And he loved it. And he loved John Woo. Suddenly, the serendipity started to come into it. And in fact, we had another lucky break because they went to Travolta and said, look, this movie's starting to heat up. Do you want to can you do you want to do it? And Travolta said, well, I'd love to work with John again. And I love the idea of working with Nick Cage as my doppelganger in this film. They had been looking for a movie together, too. Um, But John was supposed to make a movie for Roman Polanski called The Double. And so hmm. so he wasn't going to be available to make Face Off when Paramount wanted to make it. And then two weeks before the double was supposed to start shooting, Travolta was in France and everything. Um, the double fell apart. The double cr- crashed um, because there were rewrites and it changed a lot and become a comedy and Travolta didn't want to do it. So Travolta was suddenly available. And then when Travolta said, OK, yeah, I'm in. Then things really started moving really quickly. Well, they were both big stars. I mean, they were they had equal building for the most part, Travolta and Cage at that time. And it was like superstar to superstar. Nick coming off of The Rock, which is another big hit. And his yeah. Academy Award with Leaving Las Vegas. I had worked on all those films. And we just came off of Con Air. And I remember that we started the very next day. It was, right. it was done quickly because all of a sudden that we ran over on Con Air with Simon West directing. And the next morning we were on Face Off. Yes. Uh, on stage. And it was like, how did this movie come into into play so quickly? But it wasn't. It was already, it was set for a long time. It was just once Travolta got in, it, it just kind of like, it set the stage immediately, I guess. Yeah. And the great thing, uh, we had a good laugh because Paramount was like not so sure about Nick back when Johnny Depp was involved. And because uh, mm-hmm. we have Travolta and, you know, Nick's not, you know, we're not really sure, you know, Nick's not as bankable, blah, blah. Well, right after they cast him, Nick wins an Oscar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wins his Oscar. And so that was right in the mid- middle of Paramount's negotiation with him to do this role. And of course, his quote went crazy. Um, and we were like, that's what you get for not casting him back when you could have. It's like buying real estate too late. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, but it worked out. We were, again, one of the very, very long things that happened was that that Nick uh, wanted to do the movie for a long time and uh, and the studio got very excited once he won the Oscar and I think they were happy to pay him more money uh, because it validated that choice a little bit so that was probably yeah. early 96 yeah and he was about to go do Con Air um, because um, w- you know uh, he was not going to be available the, you know for a while I want to ask you, Michael, very rare have I seen, other than Charlie Kaufman on adaptation, well, he only came and went, but everything was word for word in that script. 
and it was shot that way um, with the writer and the director and cinematographer kind of collaborating. You guys were on set a lot uh, for an action film. I, you know, working on God in 60 Seconds, we had script doctors back and forth, but you guys were the actual yeah. screenwriters of Face Off and were there a lot. Like I had not seen that before. Why were you guys there all the time? Was that a choice by the director, the studios, or your, because you were co-producers? Um, I, it didn't have much to do with our credit. Our, we got that credit because, although we did a lot of work on the movie, um, aside from writing, uh, we got that credit when David Permit optioned the script from us. Um, mm. When you read the script, it was hard to understand always who was doing what, because mm -hmm. we identified the characters by their character name, regardless of whose body we were seeing. And so I think a lot of times reading the script, people couldn't follow it. And, and Mike and I would laugh because we thought we would probably have been fired if someone had just gone through the script and just wrote in the names of the actor in every scene then they wouldn't have needed us because lots of times we would go on the set and Travolta or Nick would say, who am I in this? What, which am I seeing? Because of course, as you know, it's shot, they, you know, I break yeah. it up in shots. And so, you know, they don't always, you can't always know. Um, and, but I think what really ultimately did it for us was, was our relationship with John Woo. We were so thrilled to have the movie going, but at that time, of course, we knew a lot more about John's films and we really sat, we consciously said, we have a chance to make a John Woo movie here. Not not just like a big Hollywood movie with John Woo directing it, but a John Woo film that can sit with his, all his great films, Hard Boiled and The Killer and A Better Tomorrow and all these great movies. Um, so so let's make sure that John is supported because that's not always the case, you know? Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of work to do during the production on adjusting for locations. Um, lots of times the actors... Uh, not just John and Nick, but a lot of the actors would have issues or questions about dialogue. Can, you know, did they, could they riff? Could they not riff? What was being lost or not? And you want to make room, obviously, for all these collabor collaborative people. You don't want to just uh, hire John Travolta or Nick Cage and then tell you, no, you got to do it exactly like this. Yeah. Unless really great reason well they bring so much to the table both those actors bring so much they had their they had their followings and and the, you know they're veterans of film by this point they did ad lib michael did they not i mean there were scenes one was um because i don't give a fuck right so i'm gonna guess that that was ad libbed by nick uh could i be wrong and also when he was doing the face off because he did it so many times that I think that I kind of remember the two of you guys behind the monitor looking at each other, looking at John Woo, we're watching Nick and doing this whole thing and everyone's like, where did that come from? Did we write that? Did we miss a page? And I would stare at you guys and I looked at John Woo and I'm looking at the producers. I see the script supervisor, a little dumbfounded. And I'm thinking, I don't remember doing the stand-in portion of that part of the scene. Did I fuck up? Am I fired? <laughs> no. Um what happened was that the dialogue was in there, um, but it was not nearly done as expansively as Nick did it. And, and actually that day, uh, by coincidence, studio had been sending out these memos about, should we change the title? And they had terrible ideas because they were concerned that, oh, people will think it's about hockey uh, mm -hmm. We had the backslash in it in the name so that people wouldn't think it was about hockey. Uh, there was a lot of just Michigas about 
the title and they were proposing a lot of terrible titles like the switcheroo and all these terrible things. And we were completely talking about it. And Nick said to Mike, my partner's like, Oh, don't worry. After today, it'll be face off. Mm -hmm. We were like, okay, we didn't know what he had planned, but, but he worked it out with John because there's this, it's not just like they had a, a two set up, you know, and had the camera on him. They come in from above on Nick and he's going face off. So they had cooked up kind of how he was going to make a big meal out of that moment. And um, and then, of course, he got Nick Cassavetes uh, to riff with him about it. Yes. And you probably went back and forth like face off, face off, face off, face off. They went on. I mean, it was cut down in the movie to a couple, but it yeah. went on. On and on. on and on while we were shooting it i was just like is this a joke are they fucking around are they mocking the script are they mocking the characters what's up with cassavetes is he putting a greasy greek on us like what the hell was going on yeah all the above probably but uh what was fun for us and and you probably won't hear a lot of writers say this but what was fun for me and mike is when like for example in the beginning of the movie when nick is the priest mm -hmm. and he's planting the bomb well, that's the only scene that Nick exactly that Nick got to establish that character for himself and for mm -hmm. the audience. And so he did riff. He did the head whipping and he grabbed the girl's butt and went, oh, you know. So when we saw that stuff coming in on the dailies, we said, oh, we got to get Travolta to do this when he's the bad guy. Oh. And so we would find a place in the script that we hadn't shot yet. And said, okay, here's a scene. So later on in the movie, when you see Travolta's in his office and he's now the bad guy, he's now Nick's character, mm -hmm. and he grabs the secretary's butt and goes, mm -hmm. oh, you know, that was because of what Nick did. That's what Nick improvised early. Oh my and God, so, that's brilliant, Michael. I never thought about that. So anything those guys did that, that jumped out at us is like, oh, that's really cool. Um, let's find a place, a way to get the other guy to do it uh, when they switch roles. It really is beneficial to have the screenwriters there. I mean, sometimes these studios don't want you there. The director doesn't want you there. But look what you do bring to the film and look what you can add on or take away or change or yeah. throw two little words that I think many times the studios make a mistake and they, they disrespect the writers who actually brought the show to life. Yeah, I, I think it. I think that that is a mistake that they it's part of the culture for whatever reason of movie making. I think it, it I think it flies in the face of the director as uh the, the the you know the the premier talent on the set um and the, the the flip side of it is in television because the te the writers are never fired off a television show the writers are the ones who runs the sh run the show and so i think there's a reason why tv especially now the last 10 years or so tv has really exceeded one of the reasons is it exceeded movies uh in a lot of ways in terms of interesting stories interesting characters just Every time you turn on the television, there's some new uh, exploring, some new kind of pushing the envelope, I guess, of the form. And you don't see that in movies that much anymore unless they're very small, private little movies like we saw, you know, La La Land or Moonlight, in which it's a writer director or or people who are really working closely together. But in the big studios, uh, I, movies. Yeah, I think it's a lot of times it's like what happened with you guys on Gone with 60 Seconds. It's just sort of one writer at a time um and and mike and i have been those writers not on that film but we have definitely been uh on a list of writers that have worked on movies that you know you do your whatever couple weeks and then you're off i agree with you i, I you know working on face off and all the films i've done with nick and they ask me all the time they're like what is your favorite film you've ever done with nick i said face off 
And everyone's wow. like, why? Because for such a large budget, intense, dramatic film, so many hotshot actors, trailers, directors, producers, locations, six months of shooting, you know, 15 hour days and beyond, exhaustion, the mood of the set, I had never felt before or since, Michael, from the, and I think it stems from John Woo. John Wu brought a certain casualness to this intense film and everybody else collaborated. It worked between the writers, the actors, the director. Everybody just felt like we're on this big fucking team and we're doing good. And, and no yeah. matter how tired and sick we were, this was like, I'm showing up to work on Face Off. It just, it became that. I agree. I, I think John set the set the tone. Um, we had one moment in the production toward the end where I started to panic one day because... We were already over scheduled and we were supposed to shoot the big scene that ended up being in that chapel. And that originally had that originally had been written to be shot outside at a grave site. And it was a much bigger piece of work. And guys from the studio were there and they were panicking because it was going to be so much money and take so many days. And Barry Osborne says, we have to move this inside uh, somewhere because we can't shoot it outside. And, and Mike and I were like, oh my God, it's all going to fall apart now. It's all going to fall apart now. And uh, John Wu just said, I got it. Don't worry. I said, well, don't we have to write pages? He was like, no, <laughs> don't worry. So John said, okay, let's put it inside. Fewer people, I can cover it all inside. You know, the, And John Wu, we were very lucky because John came from China, obviously. John had made 50 movies in China. I mean, John is a one of the most prolific filmmakers of all time. Mm -hmm. So even though a lot of people didn't know him in Hollywood, he'd done this kind of stuff all the time in Hong Kong where they would lose a location at midnight and have to come up with something. I mean, the tremendous amount of improvisation that would go on in John's Hong Kong movies where they just had to, to figure it out because he, he had the movie in his head and he knew it was going to work. Well, after working in China, you can do anything, in my opinion, especially on a film. So it's like when you come from those countries and you have such a stylized world and they, you know, ask you to alter your physical position, you're like, oh, OK, yeah, that's easy. It's not a big yeah. deal. John, John had apparently someone told us before, well before Face Off, when John came over and was making Hard Target, he had a, he had a tough time at first because uh, the stuntmen weren't allowed to jump through real glass. He had to use glass and john didn't like that john's like it doesn't look real <laughs> because in hong kong there's no union you know there's no <laughs> rules uh you do something the director wants you to do something you got to do it and and for your own to save face i mean it's that whole thing uh so uh they're they're a little harder on their actors uh in china than it's allowed to be hence jackie chan yeah you know, exactly who just does it all and breaks a thousand bones right yeah Everyone. exactly Right. Yeah. So this film gets released. It becomes a massive hit in 97. And uh, what happens after that? You guys win the award at the Saturn Sci-Fi Action right. Horror Films Best Writers. John Woo wins Best Director. Yeah. What happens to you guys as a writing team, the Mike and Mike's, the M&M show? We got a lot of opportunities. Uh, even before Face Off came out, there was a buzz about the movie. Um, and we got a lot of opportunities on to re rewrite action scripts that people were trying, studios were trying to make around town. Mm -hmm. um, and some of those we took and some of those we didn't. We sold a spec that we wrote that was more of a kid's movie. Um, we worked on Collateral Damage. We worked on Tomb Raider, um, which we got credit for. And then we ended up selling a historical, um, big historical epic to John and Terrence and Bill Mechanic, who just was nominated for Hacksaw Ridge. 
and Nick was attached to that. Nick was attached hmm. to that. Chow Young Fat, but it was just so expensive, and um, it, it just didn't never never happen. Huh? Isn't that interesting how all those things work or don't work? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, there were so many things, including Nick's Superman, which I remember going into the test wardrobe for at Warner Brothers. I mean, so many things that could happen don't happen. What I feel is. Uh, TV is where film was years ago. The quality of film, like Face Off and so forth, which I think was the last decade, the last heyday of Hollywood from my experiences. Once you hit like 2002, 3, 4, it all started to crumble. The union started to crumble. Uh, writers are not respected much anymore. Production became very boring, mainstream, and all the writers and actors started to flood the TV. And that's also why we have such great television today and the, the building of the networks of Amazon and Netflix and yep. so forth because that's what... It, it's needed now. I mean, and film work is like, nah, it's okay now. Yeah, it's Hollywood is always reinventing itself. There's always mm-hmm. good times and bad times. It's a constant state of crashing and rising again, like civilizations. Um, but I agree with you. If you just look at Paramount, Face Off was made at Paramount. And in that era, we worked at Paramount a lot. Um, this is like the mid 90s to the early, to early 2000s. And we worked there a ton when Sherry Lansing was run it, running it. And I think it's instructive to look, look at that one studio because Sherry Lansing was a producer was a producer back in the 70s. And she mm-hmm. started in the business as a young woman. Um, and she was around for the, that golden age of the Godfathers and, and um, you know, the early days of Scorsese and all these great filmmakers, uh, um, including her husband, William Friedkin. Um, and so she grew up with a different sensibility. And I believe, I honestly believe that's why Face Off got made. When she read Face Off, she looked at it as a producer, not as a, not as an executive at a, uh, you know, publicly traded corporation. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, okay, this is good and evil twins, but in a different, you know, kind of with a fresh spin on that. And I think that when, when she left that, and of course, look, Paramount, it's not like every movie they made was a success or even good. But I think that she came at it from a showman point of view, that that if something she responded to something on an emotional level, she would make the movie or she'd attempt to make the movie. Uh, I think after she left at that studio, Brad Gray came in. Brad Gray, you know, he's a manager. He's an extremely successful, talented guy, but a different mindset. Um, and I think that what you see out of the Paramount's output since then, it's been a lot of sequels. They've been mining their library a lot. And don't get me wrong I, I don't think it's because they don't have ideas they want to make fun stuff too and exciting stuff but because of the economics because of the financial constraints they have to be successful yes. you know and so they have to put their resources into stuff that's a good bet or a safe bet so you get more Transformers movies you get more Mission Impossible movies mm-hmm. uh, more Jack Reacher movies and some of these movies are Great, are fun. I like the Jack Reacher movies a lot, but mm-hmm. some feel like okay, another Transformer movie. You can't really tell it apart from the previous one. I mean, I happen to like Michael Bay. I think he yeah. gives great spectacle filmmaking, but you know, the movies are not that exciting on an emotional level. Um, anyway, but I think that that's part of what where the business has gone, where there's less op- less room, there's less daylight in the boardroom to take a chance to make something new and spectacular and try to wow an audience. Uh, I just don't think the economics are there anymore for them. It's just, you know, you lose your career. And I think it's a great, what's happening at Disney now is another kind of the far end of that, which is Disney doesn't need writers anymore. Disney doesn't need pitches. It doesn't need original material 
the way other studios always have, like people like Mike and me to come in and pitch something or write something like Face Off. Mm -hmm. Disney moved really aggressively. They've got Pixar. They've got Lucasfilm. Um, they've got Marvel. They've got they big have, machines, big, big machines. Yeah, they know what movies they're making for the next five or ten years. They have their schedule. They don't. They make two original movies a year, two that are just standalone things. And they make and those haven't been doing that well, so they might not even make those hmm. uh, anymore. Um, and so that's kind of where the studios are. I, you know, look for every sort of setback like that, another opportunity comes up. And so now we're starting to see. Obviously, it's not a surprise. Netflix and Netflix just spent 110 million dollars to make the next Scorsese movie with De Niro and Pacino and Joe Pesci. I just read that. Oh, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> but their economics, their their business model support that. You know, a yeah. studio, Hollywood studio can't support that anymore to, to put that much money into that kind of film. Um, and one day, I hate to say it, but one day Netflix will struggle. You know, mm -hmm. Netflix will say, hey, we can't afford to give $500 million uh, to Baz Luhrmann or someone, you know, to make a TV series. But for now, it's good. For now, there's opportunities there. So, and, yeah. it's, and it's great for the consumer. I mean, that's the end of that's what it's all about. At the end of the day, people around the world want to sit down. They want to enjoy themselves. They want to forget life for a couple of hours and enjoy themselves. And there's more ways to do that now uh, on your screen than ever. And I think that's fantastic. I agree with you. I mean, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I mean, that that whole era during that whole face-off was wonderful. It was the last uh, heyday of Hollywood, a big big blockbuster movies with a story and you were a part of it, Michael. I mean, to me, I think it's exciting. I was a part of it. And there you are writing yeah. it from scratch. Like from 1990, you wrote it and you just kind of like tickle, 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 tickle until it got done. I mean, and to this day, you're forever going to be known for that. Not only other films and other scripts that you may be working on in TV and film, but that particular film has a yeah. place in Hollywood history for the rest of your life and our yeah. lives. Thank you. Yeah, I get called you. on it as a standard, let alone you're the writer of this. You developed it. You created it from scratch with your business partner. I think there's a, a lot to be said for that. I mean that sincerely because everybody talks about that movie. Well, it was there's even at the time, I think Mike and I definitely appreciated that this was a singular experience and we and almost no right certainly no writers get to have as positive a experience when on a movie at that scale with so many A-list heavyweights. Um, mm -hmm. for us to have been involved and for it to have worked out so well for us and for seemingly for everybody, um, you know, it was a very, uh, harmonious set, as you say, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, you know, I think people look back and think positively of that experience, have proud of the movie, uh, which is not always the case. Um, but that was a big summer. That was a huge summer for movies. And I remember Nick saying that between Con Air and Face Off, that was like his double action album, yeah. you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> Record companies, the double album out. That was Nick's double album. That was. Uh, and those were, those were really his first two big. Uh, I guess The Rock had been out the year before, yeah. and he was kind of stepping into that realm a little bit more. Yeah. Um. And uh, and Bruckheimer was a great fit for him. I don't know if he's still doing uh, uh, action movies with Jerry Bruckheimer, but they they were yeah. a great great artistic fit. They were. He did four, no, he did five films, five or six films with him. I did four with him and Brookheimer. And uh, and they were pretty harmonious overall. Jerry Brookheimer was on the ball whenever he showed up and made it run smoothly. It wasn't a John Woo yeah. film, which brought out a, a, a sympathetic and a, a more loving 
ambiance to a film to my surprise face off was like gonna be oh my god it's gonna be this horror it's gonna be so exhausting it's so much action and then john woo shows up he was the little white dove on the set there he's just like hello i almost ate myself out of a job i remember eating and by a craft service at one point i'm having donuts and i'm starving i needed sugar rush i'm having cappuccinos i was doing frappy happy cappies you know i had non-fat this and fat fat that and i'm sitting there and i'm starting to swell up and i've got tylenol coming in and i'm tired i'm going to do the prison scene that I uh, was beating up Nick in that scene that uh, somehow they gave me the part. I don't know why. And uh, John looks at me and I'm like, hi, John, how are you? He says, oh, you are no look like a Nick Cage no more. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> he says, oh, you so fat that you should want for John Tavolta. I almost died. It's like I'm eating myself out of a job. He's telling me you're so That's fucking serious. fat. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm not going to have a job tomorrow morning. When, yeah, well, that, that that was an issue at the beginning because you say Nick was in Con Air. In fact, Mike and I were invited to the dinner when Nick and John got together and uh, Nick walked in from the set of Con Air. We were all having this lovely dinner to produce Steve Ruther's house in Bel Air. It's the most Hollywood thing I've ever done. Um, and there was this buffet and all this lovely food. And Nick came in. Travolta was already there. And yeah, Travolta, look, Travolta looked good, but he was definitely bigger than Nick. Yeah. And Travolta said to him, uh, any chance you can any chance you can put on a few pounds uh, before shooting starts? Because, you know, we're supposed to be the same size. And Nick was like, I'm playing a guy who's been in prison for six years. Nick was thin as a piece of spaghetti. Oh, yeah. So, oh, my God. So skinny. And so Travolta started putting food back on the platter. <laughs> He's like, I guess. Wait, I guess. Um but yeah, that was an issue. That's pretty That's pretty funny. But look, what are you going to do on a movie set? Everyone puts weight on on a movie set. You yeah. just can't not. Uh, brownies and bagels and, and the food was spectacular on that movie. Well, and, yeah, Tony Karam. Uh, oh, my God. Couldn't that's stop Travolta. eating. That was Travolta's. He's always in, in Travolta's contract. I love that. I was so happy. He was also in Brookheimer's yeah. contract with Barry Waldman. It was like, oh, my God, I'm going to have steak and lobster every day because I knew when yeah. I was not going to be working, I'd have tuna fish sandwiches at some cheap little sleazy deli for two ninety nine. <laughs> that's right, man. You eat on the set and keep your per diem. Oh, it's exactly what I did. That film, by the way, Michael, was the film that Arthur Anderson, the first AD, helped me along with um, Nick's uh, management team and his agency that Richard Lovett at CAA helped me get my um, contract on that film. So I was in, which is why I had a casting credit the entire time versus just on the standing thing. And uh, I ended up uh, on a on a big actor's contract on the entire film in addition to having the actor in part, which was part of Arthur Anderson's uh, and John Woo's decision. And with that is why I still, 20 years later, still get residual checks, uh, bizarrely enough. Arthur, that's a, I think that was their first movie together, Arthur and John. What a great guy. Believe, and what... Again, one of the many miraculous things that happened for us and the movie was those two guys because they mm-hmm. just had such and still I think John Arthur went on to make a lot of John's movies. Was he, he on Wind Talkers? He was. He was on Wind Talkers. We had Joan Cunningham as a second AD. She was wonderful, lovely girl. So twenty years later, life still goes on. There is life after Face Off. It's iconic. There is life for you. There's life for me. There's life for Mike Werb, John Woo, and everybody else. And we're still all alive. We're healthy. We're working. Yeah. Uh, acquired some wealth and and a decent lifestyle. You're married and have kids, and I'm yeah. married to my hair products, which is good enough for me. <laughs> and so, 
yeah, we really really got lucky with all the crew and all the department heads and all the talented people. And it was very, very fortunate, really fortunate. Um, you know, you, look, again, you've been on tons more movies than I have and seen it up close. And it's always a miracle when they even ever get made, let alone turn out well. Um, that's even a bigger miracle. So we are very happy with the way the movies turned out. And uh, even my kids think I'm cool. Yeah, um, because- dad wrote face yeah. off. I'm telling yeah. you, Michael, even from, you know, I'm an outsider for the most part. I mean, you guys are on the inside, but even my little tech kids over here, I call them my little tech monkeys, my tidy whitey boys. And uh, and all the other people I speak to, even older people. And so they all talk about that film more than The Rock, more than Con Air, more than National Treasure. They're like, it's wow. face off. And uh, I'm so happy you wrote it because we got yeah. to work on it. So, yeah. Yeah, it brought a lot, of, a lot of good people together, I have to say. So, Michael, thank you for taking the time to uh, oh, you, to doing the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Marco. Much appreciated. See you later, buddy. This concludes our podcast with Michael Caleri, co-writer and producer of the cult classic film Face Off and faculty member at UCLA. Until next time, this is Marco Kira signing off. Slow.